Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Elda Dauber. She's a licensed social worker, a licensed clinical social worker, I should say, a nationally known award-winning clinical social worker whose 40-plus year professional career has been dedicated to working with children and adults victimized by childhood sexual abuse. Her new book is entitled Wait Until I'm Dead, a novel of family secrets. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Elda. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate being here. Yep, great to have you here. Well, your book, Wait Until I'm Dead, is described as a uniquely structured novel celebrating one woman's tenacious recovery from childhood abuse. It's formatted as a memoir within a novel, and it speaks directly to the reality of women's lives and silencing of their determination to be heard. So that's quite a task uh, to accomplish in one book. And as you and I said before the show, you this is your first book, right? Um, yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here you are, practicing social worker for, what, 40 years, and now you decide to write a book on childhood sexual abuse. Why? Well, you know, I had semi-retired. I put that in quotes. And... Um, the voices of the kids and the families and the adult survivors that I had been working with for years kept staying in my head, literally. And I wanted to give back to my profession in a way that I hadn't um, anticipated I would need to once I retired. And um, I had always, I mean, I loved to read and I loved to write and I started to feel as if I had a story inside me. Um, but honestly, I thought the last thing the world needed was another textbook on child sexual abuse. Yep. So I wanted to try and pull something together that would be a good read, like a page-turner of a read, mm-hmm. but that, always, that would also be faithful to the stories and the experiences of the kids and families that I worked with. So hence okay, the so memoir. You make it really interesting. You make it something that people will want to read, not something that's, I guess what I hear you saying, like not too clinical, something right. that really will, a lot of people will want to read, not just people in the profession, and you've certainly had a lot of experience with uh, childhood sexual abuse. You also have done a lot of training, so this mm-hmm. book, you know, is, will cover a wider audience, I guess. Um, and you also, the book comes out at a time when, I mean, when you talk child sexual abuse, this Josh Duggar, I mean, the minute I you know, yeah. got information, yeah, so I want to ask you about about that, because, uh, you know, that's really a, a story that everyone's heard, but it's really very much also related to your book. Well, I mean, any story, literally, of of someone's experience of sexual abuse um, is horrendous, and it is it is relate, can be related to the story because it, the story comes from the experience of many, many different kids. Um, you know, I don't know enough to speak directly about that situation, but... You know, I think part of the problem is that people tend to uh, minimize what the experience is for a child who experiences unwanted sexual touching. Um, well, and as a social if, worker, why do you think that is? I mean, you've had experience with lots of different kids, lots of different families, um, each one unique, and in, in, obviously in certain ways. But um, why do you think that we, and I think it's cultural, do try to minimize childhood sexual abuse because it's so horrific we're in denial we don't want to we don't even want to go there 
Okay, all of those and more. Yes. I mean, I think that's the problem. It's like, first of all, it's been going on for so long. When I first was training to be a social worker in the 70s, I was taught that sexual abuse only happened to one in a million kids, and it really wouldn't impact my caseload at all. And the more I worked, the more I realized there's something wrong with that idea, which is why I got myself trained to be able to do what I did. But, but so there's, a, there's a, a universal cultural denial of the extent of what the problem is, and, and it's, it embarrasses the, the child themselves. They're led to believe that it's their fault, that they should feel guilty and complicit in it, which comes out in some of my novel. And, and it also is... Um, uh, not has not been talked about. Now it is. That, you know, the Duggan thing is all over the news. More people know about it, and maybe the very fact that it's on the news will help more people come forward and say. But you know, it was honestly the women's movement um, in in the seventies and eighties that got people talking, women talking to each other about the reality of their lives, and in that, their histories of abuse was part of that. So rape crisis centers became developed and, and uh, domestic violence programs started, et cetera. So, because don't you think before that, uh, women were blamed? Well, if women were raped, they got blamed for the rape. And Absolutely. As you say, yep. Yeah, and if they got uh, abused as a child, they were blamed for they were seductive. They were the ones who did the seducing. They enjoyed it. And maybe yes. just physically they do react. I mean, physically... Uh, a child does re- re- uh, react in a, a sexual way and feels guilty about it. So there's just so much stuff going on there that's taboo. Well, and part of the problem is that we don't fully understand the fact that bodies respond to touch just because it's an, very frequently an involuntary response to a touch, you know. And so if that felt comforting or felt good or felt different, yeah, you know, then then it's confusing. And so we get into that place of being confused by what's happening, and then nobody's talking about it because it's a secret. And so what do you do with it? You keep it inside. You know, I, I remember as a social worker, I had a case where uh, the mother knew all along that this was happening, but she was so terrified to say anything because felt so dependent on her husband who was abusing Yes, that showed the girl. Yeah. It was actually two girls, and uh, she was afraid that you know she had no place to go if she you know revealed that secret. And so it was yep. a, I think, which is, is that something? And this is quite a while ago. Is that is that still something that's relevant? That kind yes, of scenario. Yes, it is still relevant. I mean, yeah. the worse the economy gets, the more relevant it becomes. But also, you know, I don't want to. I know that my book talks about a non-supportive, non-believing mother, but uh, there wouldn't be a story if there weren't wouldn't be a story for the book if, if she were believing. It would be a short story. But, but that the majority of mothers do not know that this is happening, and, and the majority of mothers do support and believe. So it isn't that every um, parent responds exactly the way I have depicted that in my story of the situation. So you're I want to be saying, clear about that. Different than your book, you're saying most mothers don't know? Most mothers do not know this is happening within their own families. And I think so how does that play out? You know, I mean, you've had so much experience in this area. How can they not know? Well, see, that fits into the cultural belief that mothers know everything mm-hmm. and are more responsible for uh, protecting than their partners are, um, and, that, and that all women are by nature nurturers. And it isn't so. I mean, people's lives get so complicated and stress happens in so many different ways in, fa- in families, financial stress, interpersonal stress, 
medical stress, all kinds of things, that sometimes you can be unaware of the things that are happening. For example, if one of the ways the youngsters most frequently disclose abuse to someone is they say, so-and-so is bothering me. That's the most frequent way that kids tend to say they've been being sexually abused. Now, how many of us, just as human beings, when a child says somebody's bothering us, say something like, well, stay away from them. Uh, don't play with him anymore. Don't, don't go near him. Without saying, tell me more about that. I mean, In other words, if you're a parent saying, what do you mean by bothering? Like, yeah, it's exactly what we should yeah. be doing. You know, and it's one of the things I try to say in my book about, you know, if, if when the brother and sister had come to the parent and, and said this happened to them and the mother's response was, tell me more about that, what happened, would, would there be a different outcome? We don't know. We can only hope. What, give us an example of different kinds of scenarios. I mean, we sort of were starting to, we've touched on that a little bit, but what are the different scenarios and who does, does the child usually go to the mother or go to a teacher or go to a friend or, or is that, it, it just depends. This, this... Well, I mean, research is showing us that, um, you know, some mothers suspect and they themselves will ask a question of the child. But, you know, here's the thing. We're talking more about mothers, but the offender is the person who did the behavior. And the offender very frequently is saying to the child, something terrible will happen if you tell. And sometimes they're saying something terrible will happen to your mom if you tell. And so is this a child who's then going to go to the mom and tell? Because kids at, at almost any age, but certainly younger children, believe that what adults tell them is gospel. It's the truth, right? So, so there's a fear of going there to tell somebody. Many kids will tell in school, and now we have a lot of um, safe touch and healthy touch programs in school so that the kids are more likely to, to disclose there. And some tell another kid, some tell a friend. You know, um, mostly, uh, and many, many, many do tell their own parent, and many, many parents listen, respond, act appropriately. I, I don't, never want to lose sight of that piece. Um, Elda, who usually is, who's the abuser? Someone the child knows. I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah. Very, very. I think we need frequently. to talk about that because I think there's also a myth surrounding the fact um, that the abuser, you know, is some boogeyman out in the street who's like this horrific looking person who, you know, uh, that you stay away from when it's yeah. actually quite the, it's a 180 from that. It's the opposite. Yeah, it is a, it is a perfect 180. It is someone that, it is most frequently someone the child knows, loves, or trusts. And that could be a parent, but it could be a, a relative. It could be somebody um, that who is who is seen as a trusted person to them. Uh, could be a teacher. Could be a youth group leader. Could be a minister. Could be a you know someone the coach. child knows, loves, and trusts. I'm sorry, could, I didn't hear. Yeah, I said a coach could be coach. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's safer to believe that it's that it's. Um, a stranger, and yes, strangers do molest kids. Don't want to minimize that, but the reality is that most kids get molested in their own home or the home of the offender, um, and uh, and that makes it even more difficult to tell. So, how can we as parents help to protect our well, uh, protect our kids, protect our daughters? What do we do? How do we prepare them without you know? 
you know, sitting them down and making, you know, it, it seems so sad that you have to do this, and at what age would you do it? I mean, I, you mentioned that they do, that they have programs in schools, but what about at home? What can a, a parent do? Well, um, first of all, it's not just girls, boys too, okay? But secondly, we have to make ourselves tellable, just as adults, never mind just a parent, but as adults we have to make ourselves tellable. And that means we're giving information to kids from a very early age. I can remember with, with my own grandkids, you know, if, if even in arms when they're little and they reach out and they bite you, and it, you know, the message has to be that that hurts, you know, and, if, and that Nana doesn't bite Ben's body, Ben doesn't bite Nana's body, because my body belongs to me. From the beginning, before they even understand those things, and then you graduate that information up to private parts. Okay, but but here's the other thing. If you're a tellable parent and you tell your children they can tell you anything and that you will listen and respond to them, then when they tell you they've done something wrong, we have to listen and respond to that without going nuts on the kid. You know, I, how, could you, how could you have done that? I told you a million times not to do that. When you do that, then they won't tell you the next thing. So what we have to be able to do is to say, thank you for telling me that. You know what? You're in trouble because of this, this, and this, but I appreciate that you're able to tell me. And keep yourself, and I put this in quotes, tellable all the time. You don't have to be a child's best friend, but you do have to be tellable. All right, so once you're tellable, and let's say your child does tell you, and then what's the next step? And let's say it is the child's teacher or coach or or the partner, uh, you know, the the the, the, per- the mother. Um, yeah. Or- well, yeah. Every state has a child abuse reporting law. Um, where I'm from in Rhode Island, every citizen is a mandated reporter. Most states, the mandated reporters end up being educators and medical professionals and police. Um, but, but what a person needs to do if a child has told them is not begin an inquisition. Really, you say, thank you for telling me. I need to do something about this and call your local resource for help. That should be Child Protection Office, your police department. Um, if it's someone who is a caretaker, a parent or a caretaker, that in most jurisdictions is the responsibility of Child Protective Services, the state. If it's a coach or if it's a youth group leader and on some level like that, that's a police issue. Um, but you can call either party, call for some outside help, um, and either party will point you in the right direction to get the help that you need. I think another one of the myths is that it only happens in certain economically deprived families, that it doesn't happen in well-educated, middle-class, upper-middle-class families. That, yeah, I'm that, glad you mentioned that because yeah. that is one of the worst myths. You know, this is un- unfortunately an equal opportunity situation. That pe- there are people within all cultures, within all um, socioeconomic groups, within all religions who who take advantage of children um, and in a sexual fashion. And it's not limited to one group or another, sadly. Yeah, and I do think that's an important point because even I think in, in families where they are maybe more uh, better or well-off financially, educationally, socially, it's easier to hide. Yeah. Um, you know, they're less exposed to some of the, you know, to, to the outside world. And they get, in terms of being able to hide what they're doing within the confines of their own family. 
Yes, and I think that that's one of the reasons those youngsters disclose sometimes at a lower rate than others because they can see power being used in their families, and if they've been threatened that power will be used against them or someone else, then they're less likely to disclose. And, you know, the more distance you have because you have the ability to live on a three-acre piece of land or a 12-acre estate, um, the less chances there are that somebody will overhear or see or um, find something out either. You're not going to have the social worker on your doorstep. Nope, not the way some people do just by virtue of where they live. Exactly. All right, now let's talk about your book. I don't want to give away the whole book because we want people to get out there and, and, and buy it. Pick it but, up, right. Because <laughs> um, obviously you present a certain point of view in the book, but yeah. tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the characters and what goes on. Well, my main character is is called DJ Brava, and she's actually a romance writer. And she decides at some this juncture of her life to write her memoir. So she goes to her editor um, with her memoir and asks him to publish that and takes off after that on a uh, trek to let her family members, her sister and her mother and uncles, know that she has written her memoir about how difficult her childhood was. And as a result of just even doing that out loud, things start to happen, start to happen to her editor, start to happen within her family, and more and more secrets get revealed. Um, And what she thinks is her purpose gets... uh, get sidetracked by more information that she gets from her sisters, an encounter with her mother, an encounter with her uncle, etc. So it, that, that external part is the page-turner of the book. It's really gripping. Um, and in order to tell you why some of these things are happening, there are ten chapters of DJ's memoir within the book periodically that kind of inform you about what happened to her, how she survived, and what her healing process was. Okay, so it's kind of peeling away at that onion. That's why we call it peeling the onion. Yeah, exactly, peeling, yeah. taking the layers away. Now, is this book, obviously it's related to, you've been in the business for 40 years, and mm-hmm. I assume a lot of it comes from your experience. Does any Mostly, of it come yeah. from your own personal experience? Well, I yes. Mean, personally, I mean, your I'm... own life, your own family. Yeah, I mean, part of the process of being a social worker and not a not a uh, writer from for life is that I had to take some of that from my own experience to give the body of the novel. So yes, I had um, uh, a, a brother who died of cancer. I had a sister who died of amyloidosis, and I used the those uh, facts of my life to uh, flesh out the rest of the story. But I, you know. No uncle's abused me. No uh, um, uncle is, I, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but, <laughs> uh, the main antagonist, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I did use what I knew because I knew if I didn't do that, I would get stuck in um, the individual cases that I had worked on for years, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be faithful to the to what happened on an emotional level, but not, so I used my own you know, experience growing up. What, you know, as a social worker, what, how did you become interested in, um, in, in that particular area, child sexual abuse? I know you have other areas of expertise as well, um, but, um, you know, was it, 
anything particular, either in graduate school or something that happened to a friend, or what got you interested in that? I'll tell you something, Catherine. If I knew the answer of how it all came out, I would, I would tell you. I, um, I began work after graduate school. I began working at a juvenile diagnostic center. Now, this is the 70s, and I had many cases, particularly of girls but also of boys, of running away from home and not to anything, just to get away from there. And as I said earlier, in, in 1976, we were told not, not to worry about sexual abuse, so we didn't even ask the questions. And, and I can recall a situation where a, a young woman ran away and people tried to re- return her and she ran away again. And she ended up hanging herself. And, uh, you know, I worked with a multidisciplinary team at the time, which was a great way to go. And I remember sitting with this team one day and saying, this, something's wrong here. This is too much. Uh, we have too many of these type of cases. And I remember a psychiatrist saying to me, well, if you can figure it out, go ahead. And I said, well, I've got to do something. And I started to look around for new information. I knew that there was sexual abuse connected with one of these situations, but I couldn't. I mean, make a long story short, I found training. Um, Judith Herman out of Boston and Ann Burgess also out of Boston were doing some trainings on this in the 70s. Um, Father-Daughter Incest came out, um, uh, Conspiracy of Silence by Sandra Butler came out, uh, and I started to get um, into it enough to realize that this was a lot more pertinent to some of the things that I was trying to do case by case with kids and families than I had thought. For example, when I started asking the question, I started getting a yes response. This happened to me. Um, but before we ever asked the question, we never knew. And so, frankly, I continued to get myself educated and at one point then became the specialist in sexual abuse for the Department of Children and Families here in Rhode Island. How, what are we talking about then? You know, as a, well, we could take Rhode Island or even nationally then, you know, when you started asking the questions, all right, you got the answers, and now you can see this is, you're talking about the 70s. What are we talking, do you know what we're talking about in terms of numbers now of, of, of children who are sexually abused? You were still talking about the same numbers. We're talking about one in every three or four females and one in every five or six males. We're still talking about the same numbers. One of the reasons... I'm writing the book is to try and, you know, this has to end. It's just overwhelming. But the how numbers, can it, if we haven't ended it, what are we talking about, 40 years? We haven't, as you say, the statistics are exactly the same. We're still abusing our children in the same way at the same rate? Yes. Now, somebody will tell you that numbers have gone down, but then if you look at, um, if you look at the fact that, uh, child welfare organizations, which usually take this information all over the country, are um, under-supported um, financially, um, that a lot of these cases are being diverted to other ways so they don't get counted. Um, uh, yes, it's still the same. And it, it, there's nothing more disheartening than that, frankly, for so, to someone who's been working on this for years and years and years. So are we doing the same thing? You know, when you keep doing the same thing, you still get the same thing back. And so have we been doing the same thing in terms of trying to eliminate childhood sexual abuse? We, aren't, well, we haven't changed our tactics? Or? I think slowly over time, yeah, we're doing more about educating people. We're talking about it more. We're, but, you know, when you talk about it more, what happens is people then tell you more. 
So there were cases that we would never have heard about until somebody went to an adult therapist that we're now finding out about at a much younger age. That's the good news because you can provide treatment, you can stop the abuse, you can provide treatment, and then you prevent um, intergenerational transmission, which is good. So, but we're learning new things every day about how best to do it. And there are now, um, I mean, part of my book is uh, dedicated to the children's advocacy centers that now exist. They, didn't, they weren't there when we started this work, but there are places where kids can go and be heard. Um, their interviews are uh, done by a forensic interviewer rather than any, just anybody, any old police officer or any old social worker, uh, somebody who knows how to talk to kids at various developmental levels. They're videotaped. They're used in court. Um, we get disclosures. We get... Um, uh, uh, we get um, offenders to uh, say, yes, I did that. You know, unfortunately, sometimes they plead to a lesser um, charge. But the fact of the matter is we are stopping the abuse at an earlier age than we did before. That's the just, good news. Yeah, I just the, uh, the, the National Children's Advocacy, Advocacy Center is in, uh, what, Huntsville, Alabama? The, that's the one in Huntsville, but there are more than 500 all around the country. You have some up near you. And um, what hap- And we only have a couple minutes left, but uh, specifically because if you want to talk to a child, do you have to? How does that work in terms of getting permission from a parent or not? Or well, these are cases that um, that the child has already disclosed, and after disclosure, some cases, not all, depends on a lot of circumstances. But some of these youngsters' interviews are done at the Children's Advocacy Center. Um, and at that interview are the police officer, the child welfare worker, someone from the attorney general's office. Um, and then usually these are the cases that can then proceed to court for, um, but, but in order to have any of the things go through the Children's Advocacy Center, they have to go through either your police department or um, the local child welfare agency. They make a determination about which cases go that way. But it's a, a head and shoulders above the way we used to do it, where kids had to be interviewed you know, sometimes six, seven, eight times before anything happened um, to, to, to put them in a safe place. And, and with a child, if you're doing that six or seven or eight times, I mean, that in itself is so traumatic for the child to make them repeat their stories over and over again and to go through it over oh, and absolutely. over. absolutely. I had a youngster one time, he was six years old, he said to me, I, I, I had to ask him to tell me what had happened, and he said, I'm not telling you, I've told, I've, I said this uh, 99 times already. Now, he hadn't said it 99 times, but to a kid, that's what it feels like. And so I asked him to go for the big 100, and he did, so I got lucky. How are they usually resolved? Okay, you're talking about the statistics in terms of how many cases we have, like like the end result, I mean, in terms of what does happen. Does the abusive uh, person go to jail, or if it's in the case of a family, do they go to counseling, or what happens? Well, you know, most most of the offenders do not end up in jail. At least in our state, that's not what happens. You know, there are resources for offenders who are removed from the family. Um, there are um, group therapy programs for offenders, um, and they have to be, you know, on probation, and they have to be monitored, and they all kinds of things. But, you know, families are families, and most families would like to reunite and reunify. And I know that years ago I might have said, once a sex offender, always a sex offender. And I don't believe that anymore. I think that people have the capacity to change, but it takes 
educated people who've been doing this for years to be the people on the front lines making the decision about whether this is a situation in which reunification can happen over time after treatment where the child is safe um, and the um, and the non-offending parent is also involved in in protective kinds of issues where they can learn how to um, make their family safer. All of those kinds of things have to happen. What are there any particular kinds of sex offenders who you see who you would, would there, there'd be some indication that there could be some. I don't know if you want to call it a cure, but that they could, they they can heal, that they can get better, that they won't continue with that kind of behavior. I mean, are there any? Things well, there that, are there are yeah. risk assessment um, uh, protocols that people use, and I don't because I don't treat sex offenders, and I'd be reluctant to say it. But I think that with what I will say is we're finding that people um, who are not violent in terms of their um, abuse of the child. And who are who have some form of connection, emotional connection, with understanding what their what their behavior has done emotionally and physically, um, and who are really involved in treatment, um, do better than people who have no emotional connection with this child, no real understanding of um, what their behavior has been, and still blaming the child. That you know it. Uh, people that provide sex offender treatment are skilled at that. I am not. Are there differences between? I'm skilled. We're going to ask you the questions because yeah. you are our expert. But I would just like: is there a difference between the offender who goes around as a predator, like sexually abusing many children, as opposed to say someone, who, yeah, who's in, I go back to someone who's the parent or the uncle, or just they kind of choose the one child in their own family or their own environment? Um, yes, there is a difference, um, but it's an individual difference that somebody would have to make a judgment about because, um, because just because something appears to be this doesn't mean it is this, um, that sometimes there are hidden victims that we don't see because we've only heard about this one in this family. So I can't uh, comment. You'd have to... There's plenty of people you could call to have on your program who could answer that best, better than I. Well, what about information? Okay, where where do we go for? I mean, first of all, give us information about your book. Where we can uh, we can read it online, bookstores? Where? I mean, where is it available? Um, I assume right now it is uh, it is available on Amazon as a as a e-reader on Kindle or or your e-reader. Um, it's also paperback available through Amazon. Um, it is available in some bookstores here in Rhode Island, but it's not available on a wider basis yet. Uh, what I'm hoping is with um, your, your program, for example, that people might get interested um, in your area and a bookstore would pick it up. That would make me very happy. Um, I am on, um, I have a website at uh, www.emdauber.com. It's E-M-D-A-W-B-E-R.com or www.waituntilimdeadnovel.com. Um, so uh, if people can't find it through the other resources, they could contact me and I could um, send it. A portion of the sale of my books goes to our local Children's Advocacy Center here at our Rape Crisis Center. Um, okay, so, so places it, it, where, yeah. 
lots of places where it's available. And also, what about information about just the general topic, obviously? Yeah. I mean, if someone's listening to the show and they're saying, you know, maybe it's something that's happening in their family. Um, right. Yeah. Well, at the back stop? of my book are a, yeah. a, a plethora of resources, but the National Children's Advocacy Center is just www.ncac.org. Um, your local rape crisis or um, domestic violence program can give you uh, help that you need. There's a National Child Abuse Hotline, which is 1-800-4, as the number 4, A-C-H-I-L-D, for a child. Um, there, uh, But, you know, personally I would at, tell people to start with what's local to them. Um, if you are a sex offender, if you are thinking about um, molesting children, there's an organization called Stop It Now, www.stopitnow.org. And uh, they have great resources for people that are, um, and a great understanding staff for people that are wanting to not do this behavior. So, now, is that unique? I have not heard of that. And, yep. uh, and uh, that's interesting. Stop it now. Is that the, the only one that really deals specifically with the offender? Um, yep, at this or point. Or the potential offender, I guess. So it really does yep. give you the opportunity to not do it if you have yep. those urges, I'm calling right, that. Right, and, they, and they, will, they will point you to resources closer to home. But this is a group out of Western Massachusetts, and they're, they're, um, very, they're becoming very well-known nationally. And what about online, like different, you know, talking to people, it's a little bit more, I say the word anonymous, but, you know, support groups online for... Yeah, you know... Not, yeah. I, I'm I'm more reluctant to, uh, because a lot of people come to me and say, well, how about mine and how about mine, and I can't, I can't make good judgments about those, um, but I would look at things like Child Help USA, which is one... Um, I'm trying to think. Um, there's another group called One in Six uh, and Darkness to Light. And that's www.d2l.org. Darkness to Light. But you can find it on Darkness to Light. Uh, so there are a lot, there's a America. lot of help out there. There's a lot of support. You just have to access You have to it. Yeah. be willing to give them a call and see if see what people can do for you. What about family therapy? Well, family therapy is great, but the way I look at family therapy in terms of after abuse has happened is not the whole family initially sitting down together in a family therapy session. I think that's the last thing that you do. Okay, why? Because everybody is ashamed of this and feels guilty and responsible. So the family as a group would rather talk about so-and-so's um, school-related truancy than what daddy, who's also sitting in the room, did. So what we talk about in terms of family therapy is the victim gets supportive services and treatment, the non-offending parent gets a non-offending parent group, the offender gets an offender group, the parents get marital therapy to deal with what went wrong that this happened in their family, the kids get seen, the siblings who weren't abused uh, can, can also be seen, and then, final resort, when we're starting to talk about reunification and what that means is the family all sits down together. But there has to be a way for that, before that happens, for the victim and the offender, um, to be, when the victim is ready and the offender has had treatment, and I mean that, but, you know, real good treatment, 
to do a face-to-face where the offender apologizes and takes responsibility. And after that, the family sitting down together and talking about how they're going to be safe and how things are going to be different from now on makes sense, but not family therapy right up front. Elder, from a practical standpoint, what yep. during all why this is all happening and each person is getting what they need in terms of therapy, um, but... The, the family is still in the house together, and the no. one parent no. who's the abuser is still there, or where is he or she? I think it's the, really the parent that's the abuser should not be there. I mean, unfortunately, what tends to happen is the child get, gets removed. You know, but the fact of the matter is, while the offender is getting the treatment that he needs, the family is not safe. And that's another thing that we were taught years ago, that as soon as the secret is out, don't worry about it, it won't happen again, and the family is fine. No, it isn't. For that offender to stay in that home, when the victim is removed, the chances are there'll be another victim, because a lot of this is really um, isn't focused on just one child. It's you know a, a crime of opportunity when the offender doesn't have his primary victim available, will go after another youngster. Now, that doesn't happen in every situation, but it, that is primarily what we know to have happened. Well, so the offender should the- be out. In terms of the sexuality of the person who's doing the offending, I mean, what I've always understood was that person has a very is very immature, obviously, because this person, in terms of their sexual um, proclivities, because they want to be with a child. But in this case, you have a a person or parent in the house who is abusing the child, but also having sex with their partner as well, adult partner. Yeah, very frequently. I mean, I think that you know. Part of the problem is understanding the difference between an incest offender and a pedophile. Right, well, um, tell us incest, the difference. Well, an incest offender is someone whose primary uh, sexual attraction is to someone of the same sex, and they, and they oh, I'm sorry, of an adult partner. I'm taking back what I just said. The primary sexual orientation is to a, a, an opposite sex partner, equal partner. Um, they will also then molest children. So they are usually having ongoing sexual relationships with somebody their own age, okay? The pedophile is somebody whose primary sexual attraction is to a prepubescent child, okay? And typically what we find is that uh, these are the folks who um, are coaches and they, they find access to children not in their own families but through their vocation or avocation outside of the home. Incest offenders tend, I know the, the um, legal term is sex between blood relatives, but in, our, in child protective terms, we're talking about somebody who is um, acting as a parent or is uh, related or is in a relationship with a parent to that child. And most kids get molested by incest offenders, somebody within their own home or somebody close to them. So these are the cases that would go through Child Protective Services, whereas the others would probably go through the police. Um, These are the situations where usually either the child has to be removed to be protected or the offender has to leave in order for that child to be safe. That makes sense? That makes sense, uh, which brings up another question. What what can a parent do to protect the, 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 um, the offender who is outside their home, the one who, as you say, it's an advocation or a, a vocation, it's the teacher, it's the camp counselor, it's the coach, yeah. we can go on and on, it's the Boy Scout leader, it could be any one of those, right? Or, and, and yeah. So is there anything, you know, you're putting your kid in a situation, let's say 
day camp, sleepaway camp, uh, you know, yep. coaching where you go for weekends, you know, uh, go, you know, to do the sport or whatever you're doing. Something parents yeah. need to do beforehand. I mean, it's a well, well. That's a lot of what the terrible parent thing is, you know. Um, but also to be watchful of the people who have access to your children, whether they have access to um, whether they seem to be. Um, focusing totally on your child or there's always a child uh, that they're focusing on and they don't have um, appropriate interactions with people their own age. Um, are they giving your kid gifts and not other kids? Are they spending time alone with your child uh, as opposed to with the group of kids? Small things like that that you that ought to, you know, trigger what your concerns are. And then well, always, always, always talk to your children about staying safe. Yeah, uh, and I uh, because I think today is, I mean, there are so many working mothers um, yep. that they are leaving their children in daycare centers, and that, that's a yep. group, sit, obviously, or at home with a, a single babysitter who's taking care yep. of them. Yep. Um, and uh, so it's kind of hard to police that. I, I mean, or I, I don't like to use the word police, but you really have to be aware, I guess, is what I'm you, saying. You do, and you just have to monitor what... You know, I would show up at a daycare sometime at a, at a different time uh, than usual to see how things are going. Um, I would make sure I asked my youngsters how they uh, are doing with that babysitter and what kinds of things they are doing, what kinds of games they're playing, things like that. And if they tell you the name of a game, ask what that, name, what that means. What does it do when you play, you know, the kissing game? Or, you know, you just don't take everything at face value. Ask questions. So you, know, you really we, have to be alert. I mean, it really does behoove a parent today. I mean, it's, and, and it's difficult yeah. because they have doing so many other things. I mean, I'm not making excuses, but, you know, the harried parent, both parents working and, and then having to also be very cognizant of what we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah it's, it is exhausting. I think that, you know, most adults, not just parents, but most adults spend more time talking to kids than listening to kids. And I think we have to switch that off a little bit and really begin listening and asking questions and having conversations. But our lives are just so busy. And now we have all the electronic things that we have our face in, and we we tend to have less in, in interactive FaceTime, not the FaceTime on the computer, but FaceTime with the person. I really haven't asked you about that, but predators on the computer uh, that are out there who are child... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in your experience, um, uh, I don't know how much experience you've had with that, but when does does that come into play? That has that's a, it is a big deal. It's getting more of a big deal all the time. I think that um, you know, while we trust our children, we have to monitor their computer use and their um, phone use. We have to monitor it. We don't like to be invasive. We don't like to mess with their privacy. It's not about that. It's about protection. Who are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? What are they saying? What are they doing? You know, I mean, yet we have to. But I don't know I, what else to say about that. Yeah, I know. I, it always, it, for me, it's very difficult because I have a real, you know, I, I, well, my kids have grown up, but three, I have three boys, and I it was always so important to, have, you know, that balance between I trust you. And I'm not going to be prowling around in your room and looking. Yep. For, yeah. yeah. And then. 
you really can't do that now, I guess. I mean, that's because thing, the world has changed in terms of all of this access to information that kids have, I guess. Yeah, it, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I think the things that we, we sometimes forget is that predators are very, very, very good at what they do. I mean, quite honestly, they can, you know, it's why with sex offenders we want them in a sex offender treatment group because they could talk, uh, a therapist who doesn't know enough about what offenders do, talk talk them right into letting them run the group, you know. I mean, they're, they're good at what they do. And they can talk these kids into believing that they're another 15-year-old kid and uh, come meet me because I'm falling in love with you. I mean, there's just... And, and on the internet, who knows? They could put they put pictures they you know of themselves that are not of themselves. There are some you know clip art kid that looks you know, like he's sixteen. So it's a it's it's even more dangerous in some ways. And you see why the question we asked in the beginning is how haven't we solved this problem in the last forty years? The trouble yeah. is it keeps changing. Yeah. You know, the, the the map, yeah, it does. The map keeps changing. I was thinking as you're describing the kid on the computer and the very clever predator, um, you know, what happens in your house may be one thing, but then your kid goes to a lot of different houses and has exactly. access. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And you don't have always have control over that. No, you don't. And part of the problem sometimes even in their own home is that that kids' experience has been if, par- if children complain about somebody bothering them on the computer, then the parents initial response is to curtail the computer time for that child. So then they learn that if they say anything to their parent about what's happening, they won't get to use their computer or their e-phone or iPhone or whatever. And so what happens is then they don't tell. So they'll go to somebody else's house to use the computer. So it's not easy. It is not no, easy it's being a, it's a parent. Very, it's, it's kind of daunting as you're describing it. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think you know, another issue too and is that, Parents themselves, we make the assumption that if you if they have the information and they understand, uh, you know, what a predator is, um, that they can then talk to their child. But I think a lot of parents don't have the tools themselves to be able to talk about to their child or to you know, talk about sexual issues or to talk about sex with their children or you yeah. know you use the word i think in the beginning i was going to say something about private parts and yeah. i always had difficulty with that like we don't say penis we don't say vagina we don't say right. the words yep yep which we need yeah, to you know say. we play that game heads shoulders knees and toes but we pretend there's nothing between the you know the uh head the head, head and the, the toes. shoulders and the toes yeah so, yeah yeah i know it's it's terrible but um yes so there's embarrassment and as sexualized as society is, nobody wants to see children as sexual human beings, so we pretend there isn't any um, anything sexual it, going on, will go on, ever go on. And we even do that about kids masturbating. You know, don't touch yourself. It's bad. And no, nobody's comfortable having those conversations. Everybody looks at, I mean, when you look at how many sites on the Internet involve some form of pornography, and how many um, uh, people must be watching that but still not able to have a conversation with their partner or with their kids about what's appropriate sexual behavior. I, I don't know. Well, I think the other thing is, too, though, that but you look at these little girls and you look at the way they're dressed yeah. and you look at the way you, and, and they may not be able to talk about sex or their parents can't, but they dress them up in tight blue jeans and tight tops and, and, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, nail polish and... 
Also, that's what sells. I mean, that's what's set being put out there to buy. And if you go, if you go shopping where people who have very little have to shop, okay, to buy, put, to put clothes on their children, the choices of those types of clothes sometimes are quite different from what you might get in a really upscale place. You know, it, there's, there's something about the way the industry put stuff out there for children, for girls in particular, that's um, troublesome to me. But, yeah, so but you're right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk about, you know, trying now, and what we've been talking about, it really kind of gives some insight into why the problems, I guess, are just as bad as they were in the 70s, maybe for different reasons, but it, yeah, yeah. I think it is for different reasons. It's, you know, society is changing anyway, and the the electronic nature of everything that we do nowadays just makes it. it I, I think what I was going to say before, because you triggered something in my head, is that these kids know how to use all the different electronics that come forward. They could invent one tomorrow, and the kids would know the next day how to use it. Us, not so much, right? We absolutely. Have to, I, I, I just—I was flying. Uh, I don't know where I was flying to, but this was a couple of weeks ago. And there's a mother and a father, and he—he he was a baby. I think he may have been 18 months old. And it was really, uh, actually, it would be a picture for Apple because he's sitting yeah, on one. his father's lap, and his dad has a an, an iPad, and the little the ba- and I say baby, I don't even know if he was walking. <laughs> he has yep. his little iPhone, and he's playing on his iPhone. Absolutely. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. And so imagine. I mean, imagine what the future is, you know, related to that in terms of preventing things from happening. You know, we, I, the government hasn't even figured out how to make things confidential and safe. So I don't know. Well, you're one of the ones who has to help us figure it out. And, of course, your book is going to make a difference. I, 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 that was, so. I guess, well, yeah. yeah, I just don't want to get into, okay, so now we've written this book. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of response have you gotten? I mean, from either professionals or, uh, you know, parents? Well, I've done a couple of book clubs, and it's gone really well. I've done some lectures about it. I've done a couple of lectures at Providence College relative to it. Um, uh, you know, people loving it are loving it. The Amazon um, reviews have been terrific. Um, it, you know, I don't have an agent, so I'm pushing it myself, which is why um, you got – uh, information from a publicist relative to it, but um, so the process is slow when you do some self-publishing. Um, I think if I had written a textbook, it would already be out there and it would be gone. But um, a book like this that crosses uh, genres because it's really contemporary fiction, but it's also educational in in its own right, is a hard one to really place. But when people find it, they love it. So. And they love it for the story that it's in it. I mean, a woman came up to me the other day at the gym, and she said, um, you, you kept me up till 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, what do you mean? She said, I couldn't put it down. I had to stay awake. She said, I haven't done that since I was 15. So oh, yeah. there's, there's that part of it that's really uh, gripping for people. And, uh, and I want, I will be myself teaching a one-credit course at the School of Social Work here, um, during intercession uh, in the winter, and we'll be able to use it. So um, more and more I want to get it into students and people learning how to be present for 
people who have experienced trauma. So what's your next book? Um, I'm actually working on a sequel. I'm hoping to have it be about sex trafficking. I'm about four chapters in. That's a hot topic, unfortunately. Yeah, I haven't abandoned. Yes. I haven't abandoned the voices that keep wanting to be heard yet. So, I don't know what I'll do when they're gone. The, I think there's always going to be something to, as a social worker. I mean, all the, the yep. yeah, as the topics you're. I mean, I know some of the other issues that you've been involved in, or that you topics related to your to your work is uh, sexual harassment and bullying, which is another thing mm-hmm. we we haven't even touched on that one. But um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it and about the topic um, to folks like your listeners. So I hope it's been helpful. It's been extremely helpful. And, uh, you know, we've had an opportunity to talk longer than I thought, so uh, um, we only have a couple minutes left if there's anything that you want to add. But, you know, I think we've uh, covered a lot just in this uh, hour. But um, Wait Until I'm Dead, a novel of family secrets. That's the book. That's Elda Dauber's book. And as we told you earlier, maybe just mention it one more time. You can get it where you can get the book for those who may have just joined us. Or um, so, it's available on Amazon.com as an ebook or as a paperback. And um, I I think that one of the things I love the most about it are uh, is that is that the book itself talks about the ways in which the main character had um, survivorship and, the, and that, that most people who survive trauma have had someone or something in their life that has helped them through the process. So this is a great story about the value of true friendship and, um, and courage. And I would hope that people um, who have had the experience would read the book and, and get back to me with how it felt to read it um, up in up against what their own situation had been. Right. Well, Elder Dauber, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank and, you so uh, much yeah, for inviting me. You're doing good work. Thank you. You are, you are too. Thanks. Um, we, we're we going to have to work as work in strange ways. Yeah, <laughs> they do. Yeah. Uh, we have to just keep on plugging. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.